Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So on this episode, I speak with Dr. Peter Stilwell. Peter holds a kinesiology degree from University of Calgary, a Doctor of Chiropractic degree from the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, and both MSCs and PhDs from Dalhousie University. He is currently a postdoctoral researcher at McGill University, and his research interests include pain, suffering, and patient-clinician communication. And many of you will be familiar with Peter's excellent paper with Catherine Hartman on moving beyond the BPS model towards a 5e inactivist approach to understanding and managing MSK pain. And in problematizing the BPS model the way that the paper did, it really caused me to reflect on how I reviewed and implement the spirit of the BPS into my clinical work. And I know that the paper was a stimulus for many other of my own colleagues and clinicians across the MSK professions. So in this episode, we delve into some of the underlying assumptions and lack of theoretical foundations of the BPS model and how an activism addresses these gaps. We talk about some of the issues of the BPS model in regards to its vagueness in its application and its tendency to crudely separate out complex component properties of the experience of pain. We also get into metaphors and how his qualitative research has illuminated the way in which metaphors are used and interpreted by both clinicians and patients. And while it was my intention to drill down into his paper and his inactivist model, time got the better of us but I'll be sure to invite Peter on for a follow-up chat. And as ever with these podcasts, I enjoyed every moment of talking with Peter. His expression, I just want to do it all, really exemplifies his passion, determination and productivity in furthering person-centred MSK practice. His excitement and hunger is both palpable and infectious, and I have no doubt he will further build on his already significant contribution to knowledge in this area. So I bring you Dr. Peter Stilwell. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Uh, I really appreciate the invite. I'm happy to be here. You're way on the list of my league table of people that I hoped would I'd be able to speak to, and I was surprised that you said yes. So I'm, I'm delighted that you did. Thank you. Yeah, you know, happy to be here. And as, as we were talking earlier, I was like, yeah, I usually avoid these types of things, but I've been saying yes lately. Like my, my natural kind of uh personality is like an introvert kind of style and so uh <laughs> usually i'm not jumping to to join these things but uh i've been enjoying it recently and and trying to do do more of it so uh yeah happy to be here but you're very good at them i mean i've listened to at least the the two podcasts i know you did something with matt Lowe and craig lieberson a few a month or so ago the podcast i've heard you on you share your knowledge really well and it's really engaging and it's and, and it's not this isn't easy stuff the papers you've been writing and the work you've been doing as, as we were saying doesn't necessarily or easily fit into into busy clinicians thinking and kind of radar and you do a great job of delivering it to i think clinical practice thanks uh, i appreciate that um does, doesn't always feel that way but yeah so, so every once in a while i feel like there's a, a connection and yeah able to share something of, of somewhat value yeah so perhaps we could start by you just introducing yourself to the listeners a bit about your academic intellectual and clinical background and and what you've been up to 
Yeah, for sure. I guess starting with kind of, I guess, basics. So yeah, my name is Peter Stowell from Canada. Um, I'm a postdoc researcher at McGill University in Montreal, um, but I'm currently located uh, on the East Coast, so in Halifax, Nova Scotia. In terms of like my kind of journey, like I, I guess I got a weird kind of a eclectic background, I guess. So started out doing an undergraduate degree in kinesiology, so like kind of like exercise sciences, some, some places it's called like human kinetics. So it's like heavy focus on like biomechanics, anatomy. So yeah, that was at the University of Calgary in, in Alberta. And then I did a doctor of chiropractic in Toronto, Canada. Had always wanted, like wanted to be a chiropractor since I was younger, just with, had skateboarding injuries and saw chiropractors and just seemed like a really attractive profession. So I, I knew that was what I wanted to do. And so while, while doing my education in Toronto to train to be a chiropractor, uh, I was exposed to kind of the world of, of research and it sparked a lot of interest. And I was like, damn, I want to do uh, like all of it. Uh, like mm-hmm. I want to be a clinician. I want to be involved with teaching. And I also want to engage in research. And I had always had kind of the slight affinity to like medical humanities, but um, still had that very kind of anatomical, biomechanical uh, inclination. And started, the more I kind of learned about research, uh, the more I realized a lot of my questions and a lot of my interests align nicely with qualitative methodologies, qualitative methods. So I was like, well, why don't I do a, a master's while I'm practicing and, and see kind of where that takes me. So I did a, a master's in rehabilitation research in the School of Physiotherapy at, at Dalhousie University while practicing and mostly focused in on exercise adherence. So talking to clinicians, talking to patients about their experiences, exploring the barriers and facilitators to, to exercise adherence. And I was like, enjoyed it like quite a bit. And I was like, I'm just going to keep, keep going. So continued practicing uh, and, and started a PhD um, and just started to jump even more into the research world uh, and, and dabbled a bit in, in kind of philosophy, still doing qualitative research. And then more recently was like just uh, focusing on, on research and, and teaching and so not currently seeing patients right now. So it's interesting that you, a bit like many of us, you came from a very biomedical upbringing in terms of your early education, anatomy, kinesiology or biomechanics, but yet you're your one of your first forays into research was to qualitative research which is at least for, for my journey was like yours largely anatomically biomedically orientated but went through a bit of a quantitative phase and then fell into qual research but you did you ever do much quantitative research did you get into cystics and and then transitioned or or move to qual, or you went straight from your kind of anatomy, you know, biomedically orientated education straight into qual. How was that? How did you how did you dodge the quantitative stuff? Is what I'm asking. Yeah, no, it wasn't a, a dodging. Like all my early education was all quantitative. Like you look at like the the kin education, it's all focused on objective measures. Like if you can't measure it, it doesn't count. A lot of the chiropractic education was was the same way. So, like, let's focus in on research appraisal. Let's go to the RCTs. Like, quantitative research re- really drives a lot of it. But there was this kind of glimmer of of, of qualitative research, and I, I realized like my interest in pain uh, developed over the over the years. And I was like, if if pain's really a subjective experience, we can't measure it, yeah, you know, or we can't 
it's not the best kind of proxy for for understanding pain to, to look at these numbers really we got to look at the qualitative narratives um so it's it yeah. just it just made sense to do qualitative research to address some of these research questions but it is stigmatized and, and i i'm sure you know this because being involved with qualitative research is like a lot of people still even to this day it's changed a lot but don't see it as having rigor or don't see it as being at the the level of quantitative research which is is always the struggle so already chiropractic is like somewhat kind of marginalized and rightly so with the people that are really so alternative so it's kind of weird, the double whammy where it's like already people are like oh chiropractic and then oh weird qualitative research and but i'm trying to push push forward kind of the good sides of those those things yeah i think you're, you're quite right but I, th- I think the minute the minute one accepts that something like a biosocial model or an inactive kind of shaped uh, or colored bps model but the minute you accept that that's perhaps a preferred model of practice and than the traditional biomedical model. The minute you accept that, and many clinicians, I think you'd be hard pressed to find you know large groups of clinicians that would completely reject the BPS model now. Like most people can, like yeah, right, fair enough. I, I don't fully understand it, but I'm. It seems entirely sensible. But the minute you accept the premise of that, you can't also reject qual because the minute you accept a biopsychosocial type approach, you're pretty much accepting that there are things and facets beyond purely biomedical factors or biomedical construct that what patients feel, think, how they interact in their social world, they're important. The minute you acknowledge that they're important, then you've got to have methods of research to, to be able to grasp those or apprehend those. And quant research doesn't do it by itself. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, a mixed method seems to be the, the way to go. And I think there, there are some qualitative researchers that are like, kind of dogmatic about it and and almost like anti quantitative yeah. research and I, I i don't see it very often but like um i'm definitely not in that camp like appreciate both sides and they're they're complementary yeah, yeah I might, one of my hopes is to do a podcast purely on qual and illuminate some of the the value of quality research but also address some of those as you said misconceptions that it's it lacks rigor it's not robust it's biased it's all those kind of things anyway we digress that's another podcast <laughs> So, and you just finished your, your PhD and the, the title of your PhD, I could have called my whole podcast, the title of your PhD, Exploring Pain and Clinical Communication. It's a wonderful title. I thought we could start by laying out some of the the core premises behind your inactive a- approach, the biopsychological model. Would that be fair? Am I describing, is that the right way to describe an inactive approach or is it it's still the biopsychological model with inactivism at the core? What's, how do you describe what you've constructed with your co your co-author and I think your supervisor is it Catherine Hartman? Yeah, Catherine Hartman. So yeah, she was she supervised my my masters and uh, she was one of my co-supervisors in my uh, PH uh, during my PhD as well. So the other supervisor was uh, Dr. Brenda Sabo. Yeah. So we can do it any 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 which way around. But I mean, I'd be interested to hear the the motivation for your work. I what did you perceive to be some of the the limitations? of the current iteration or the contemporary iteration of the BPS model that needed to be remedied through through your work and subsequently your inactivist approach to the BPS model? Yeah, so I guess during my PhD, like looked into uh, the biopsychosocial model quite a bit. Like I was a, a, a big proponent of it for a long time, really wrote like in 2017, wrote a paper like, 
really emphasizing the importance of a biopsychosocial approach to exercise prescription for for individuals with persistent back pain. And so really, really was it quite attracted to it uh, from an academic standpoint, but also a clinical standpoint, just offered a lot of a lot of utility. It, but really, when I started to dive into how it was operationalized, how it was used in clinical practice, um, started to see some issues that, that, that came up. And the more I, I learned about pain, uh, I was like, is this really a good model to understand pain and what other options do we have? So, so part of the, the, the theoretical work that I did, kind of philosophical work, was like proposing kind of a new paradigm um, that extended the biopsychosocial model a bit. So started to put in some kind of theoretical patches, if you will, and, and, and focus more on like an approach just focusing on experience and perception. So initially when George Ingle proposed the biopsychosocial model, it was a bit more general. Um, so it was focusing on, on uh, disease and, and health and, and illness uh, was quite, quite broad. It wasn't a, a model just for, for pain, but over the years, people started to say, well, let's apply it to pain. And, and people started saying, well, there's a biopsychosocial model of pain. And, and with that, it brought a, a lot of issues. Um, so so in, in our paper, we talk about people started to fragment it. And this was contrary to, to, to George Ingalls' original intention. So he talked about these different factors being all integrated, right? And 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 uh, connected dynamic. Um, so bios, biological factors, psychological factors, social uh, social factors, all kind of interwoven. But but when people started to apply it to pain, they started to fr- uh, split it up. So so split it up on, for example, biological on one side, uh, psychological on the other side, and you even see it in the current definition of pain by, by IASP, uh, International Association for the Study of Pain. So in, a, in, in some of their notes associated with the definition, they essentially say if uh, a lot of people report pain in the absence of kind of uh, tissue damage or, or clear pathophysiological mechanisms, and this is uh, due to psychological reasons. So they're essentially saying if you can't find it in the body, it must be in the mind. So essentially in a way, I think propagating that that mind-body dualism, which Engel really tried to get away from. And so we talk a bit about that, and we talk about an, another issue where people almost end up being reductionist in a sense, and once again, kind of contrary to what Engel was really proposing in his work, especially his uh, paper in 1977. You, you see it, so we talk about these biopsychosocial proponents um, endorsing a, a biopsychosocial framework, but they ended up placing priority on the brain or really emphasizing the brain. So somehow like mm. compress uh, the body and context and experience just into the into the brain and it, and it minimizes some of these important other factors and it can it can uh, inform approaches that misses out on on uh, uh, how these factors can really contribute and Sean Gallagher, the philosopher, calls that body snatching. <laughs> so, in a in a in a paper in I think it's 2015. It was I think it's just in Philosophy uh, uh, magazine. So it was I think it was titled like the invasion of the body snatchers. Um, mm-hmm. So he he criticizes those people that are saying that they're taking very embodied approaches, yet somehow minimize the body. They're almost like 
sanitizing <laughs> sanitizing things, making it less messy and hmm. just focusing on the brain. And and so so Engel never got round to developing a kind of clear or a, or a kind of cogent epistemology or, or, or ontology or some theoretical underpinning. He used general systems theory, that was his kind of framework, right? And so is it the case he never he never got to it? Like if, if he <laughs> he was that was next on his list and he never kind of managed it or why is it kind of philosophically agnostic? And is it is it also the case that you could find other theoretical underpinnings? So you might borrow from, I don't know, you're testing my philosophical knowledge now, but I don't know, some social constructionist version of the BPS model and kind of start to to use that as a framework. So is it, the, so I guess, why isn't there, so maybe do you know why there isn't a philosophical underpinning to the BPS? Or was there, was it the case that there's some tacit assumption that it was, was actually kind of, by medically orientation, I know that's he wasn't. He, he was obviously completely rejected. Yeah, that, for sure. But by artificially, by kind of crudely, by crudely separating out these three domains, you you're still left with three clear, distinct f- facets which contribute to pain, suffering, disease. So, yeah, again, it wasn't a question. It probably wasn't coherent. But why? Do you have any thoughts as to why that? What his his view was? I mean, you probably haven't asked him. <laughs> Yeah, de- yeah, definitely haven't. Um, I like I think I think the issue like he he did have a like a he he did have like this kind of uh, philosophy. He did have this kind of uh, laid out approach, and he and he published a paper in in the eighties like with clinical application. I I, th- I think it's a one like the biopsychosocial model is it's wonderful. Like it's a great starting point to kind of uh, move beyond just just that kind of bio biomedical paradigm where it's like only an emphasis on biochemical processes and and, and not considering psychological factors or, or social factors um I, I i think and our our a lot of people have said this so a criticism is it is kind of vague like yeah there's mention of systems theory um mm-hmm. but especially when we're applying it to to pain um, we start to run into some issues, even just the way it's laid out, biopsychosocial model. It, it's easy for people to start to fragment it. And, and, and I know like Engel didn't want that, like based on, on reading his work. Um, but, but because I think the, the, the bit of the vagueness uh, in, in some of his writings and the way that the model is laid out, it starts to become problematic. So I was like, well, why don't we just extend it? Why don't we take these current uh philosophical like this current kind of philosophical work these these more contemporary theories around perception if we're talking about pain like it makes sense to to tie in these these paradigms of Mm -hmm. of perception um and maybe we can just put it all together and and move or extend the biopsychosocial model a bit so that's what led me to this inactive inactive approach it's not saying that the biopsychosocial model's not good but it's saying well well, let's reformulate a, a bit how we conceptualize these things, and maybe that'll lead to a way or an approach where it's less likely that we're going to start putting a person in, in buckets or, mm. or splitting them up. And do, do you know much much about grounded theory? I mean, you are you familiar with the that as a qual methodology? Yeah, I, I took a graduate uh, course on grounded theory. I've never used it at, uh, as a methodology in a study or a method associated method but yeah. I, I did take a course yeah so i'm just thinking i mean is it analogous so with gt you've got you there are the original methods if you like which were 
put out, I think, 67 by Glacian Strauss. And then since then, there's it was kind of devoid. It was it was it was tacitly positivist. But since then, you've got kind of feminist GT. You've got social constructionist GT. You've got more pragmatist GTs. You've got that you've got, kind of got the collection of methods and techniques of which taken there's now a kind of plurality of different types of GT which are underpinned by different philosophical views or theoretical perspectives. And I just wonder, is it the case that we could create several versions of the BPS model? We've got one which is orientated through an activism, one through something else. Or do you, what do you think about that analogy? Does that work? Is it possible? Yeah, I think you're always going to have like some fundamental things that just are incompatible when you start to mix things. But like, I'm like definitely like methodologically promiscuous, if you want to put <laughs> it that way. Um, like I'm all for like adapting things and tweaking things and modifying it. So I like that idea, like the plurality of it. Like I, I hate kind of the, the dogmatic approaches yeah. that are, you have to do it this way or, or, or this is wrong. Like you see that in phenomenology, right? Where it's like, that's not phenomenological research because because of this person said this and it's like well no you adapt it tweak it but it, that definitely there's people that would be like you're horrible for saying that but that's my my my, my kind of thought yeah. be flexible so just to summarize some of the key i think criticisms of the bps model because it really i mean it's not perfect no no models ever perfect but i think some of the criticisms were that as you pointed out that there are there's this kind of crude separation or this or this temptation to the minute you the minute you separate out these three these three constructs is to just pick one essentially and that might fit your own particular bias or your own particular view and i think coming many of us coming from kind of biomedicalism it's very easy and particularly in, in msk care it's quite easy to latch on to the biomedical stuff but the vagueness in operationalizing the BPS model wasn't. It makes it quite difficult to 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 apply by clinicians. Were there any other criticisms that, that came out in your in your reading, or any kind of limitations with the with the model? Yeah, there's like people like uh, there hasn't been a ton of people offering criticisms, but a lot of people talk about this integration problem. Like, uh, how do biological, psychological, and social factors relate? Uh, we we don't really have a, a clear answer for that, and I think an activism starts to offer solutions to that, and it just reform. Like what's attractive to me is it it reformulates the issue right from the the get go. So instead of artif like uh, starting with these artificial kind of domains like psychological and biological, it says no, that's such a weird way to even conceptualize it because that just leads you into a, a kind of a a dualist paradigm. So it says instead we should be considering the whole, the whole person, which I think is like pretty pretty common sense, uh, and their interaction always uh, in the environment that they're part of. So the the unit of analysis to study mm -hmm. uh, the mind or experience or perception is always that uh, person environment system, the f the full system. So right from the get go, it's very clear we're not we're not splitting things up, and and it integrates. I think why it, offer, it offers kind of a good framework for pain is it is it the focus is on just perception. The focus is in, in on experience. Uh, so it, it's quite uh, quite aligned with considerations of pain. So the implications for the clinician, so you've got your, your physio, osteo, chiro, whatever it is, but operationalized or operating on a 
hard drive of BPS, and they've been doing their BPS stuff and exploring beliefs, behaviors, experience, the physical stuff too, prodding on people's bodies and looking at stiffness, all that kind of stuff. And then the the inactivist approach comes. And and what are some of the implications? So so if it's focused on perception and experience, that's kind of at the forefront of the of the approach or the model. Have you got a sense of how it, how it is operationalized different to the BPS model? Do you get an idea of what it might look like if someone's if you suddenly extracted the BPS model from someone's brain and then somehow downloaded the inactivist model and could see how someone might operate or interact with a with a patient? What might what might what might we see? And I know it's a hugely kind of hypothetical question, but it's quite, just quite an interesting thought experiment. What, what how might people behave differently or interact differently? Yeah, yeah, such an interesting, interesting. It's a huge, a huge one, and um, yeah, like inactivism is new. Like if, if you're, uh, well, relatively new as like a formal, a formal kind of uh, approach. So um, it wasn't introduced until like 1991 uh, in the book, The Embodied Mind, and um, but they did build on really kind of a heavy theoretical foundation in the in the cognitive sciences and and phenomenology. So I think that's a good kind of kind of starting point, and so so it has there hasn't been an opportunity really yet to say like okay here's in this inactive framework and this is what it looks like in clinical practice. So I think it is very kind of hypothetical. Um, that said, you are seeing it in there has been some application and especially in psychiatry uh, and in mental health and it's it appears to be quite promising and I think there are implications when it comes to pain. So. I think if we start to take a more inactive approach uh, in terms of conceptualizing pain, there would be implications for a variety of things. So off the top of my head, like I think there would be a, assessment implications. There would be implications to how mm. we explain pain and also the way that we treat pain. So I, I guess starting with assessment. So and, and, and that said, once again, we're not throwing the biopsychosocial model away. I think we're more just adding some kind of theoretical mm. patches in it. And, and helping prevent this kind of dichotomization and trichotomization. So I think a lot of these, what I maybe will describe is, could be a biopsychosocial approach. You're just adding yeah. some kind of additions to it. So assessment, so inactivism really emphasizes that first person subjective nature of experience. So uh, really would emphasize that in terms of assessment. So a person's qualitative narratives would be the best kind of proxy to, to somewhat understand mm. their pain experience. So you wouldn't be able to, under a kind of an inactive framework, to objectively measure pain or, or uh, use tests to kind of negate the experience of pain. So it really makes that very, very clear. Um, and I think you could argue that the biopsychosocial model does, does that as well. Regarding explaining pain, this is where it might start to be a bit more helpful. So I think if we take inactivism quite seriously, then we can't say pain stems solely from a structure in the spine or or it's in the person's brain. Instead, we need to consider that full person and their, their interaction in their environment, so kind of past and present, and how this ultimately produces that emergent experience of pain. So uh, emergence is one kind of, uh, of many philosophical mm. components of, of the inactive approach. Um, so, so I'd really say like we need to embrace this these kind of qualitative narratives, and we can't find pain by by going into the brain. Uh, and I think a lot of people within that BPS mm. framework still 
kind of place this emphasis on the brain, as I mentioned earlier. And uh, although they say, well, yeah, we got to appreciate all these other factors, pain is ultimately in the brain. It's ultimately an output of the brain, which an activist would say that's quite, quite problematic. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think if you look at some of the the, the clinical tools, the instruments people use to measure whether it's disability or pain or beliefs, they're, on the one hand, these are kind of psychosocial constructs, how someone, you know, what someone thinks and believes and expectations, but yet they're kind of forced into some numerical tool to produce some output score. And I think what the inactivist approach is saying that is that through conversation and through you know, really trying to work, work with the patient to construct or apprehend or, or obtain their narrative of their lived experience, you know, this is really crucial. That, that, that just, just trying to, it, it's kind of a different level of trying to explore these psychosocial components, and that's the wrong word, components. Try, I'm trichotomizing without even knowing it. <laughs> <laughs> It's just, yeah, it's easy to do and we all do it. Yeah, we have to. We, we put things into buckets to make it more understandable. And, and I think the, the inactive approach is like fully recognizes that and says we create these artificial kind of boundaries. And It's a language thing too, isn't it? Like to be able to, to have a conversation about things, they kind of need to reside as things. It's, a, it's an ease of language that we just crudely make these distinctions which aren't necessarily representative how they kind of reside in reality or a reality. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's where we run into some issues when we, we don't recognize that these are our artificial boundaries and we start to se- uh, kind of separate them as, like you said, like kind of separate entities. And uh, I, I, that's what I like about the inactive approach is it talks a lot about that. And, and I think that's what George Ingle wanted. It's just unfortunate that like a lot of the applications, it kind of overlooked that piece and just started to like silo, silo things a bit. We, I think we just got to dance. We got to dance our way through this and express our. <laughs> if language can't capture it, we just got to do some weird, weird dance to 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 convey this tacit knowledge. So, but your your research looked at pain related explanations and particularly the interaction between clinician and patient, which I thought was fascinating. So you interviewed, or you listened to both clinician and patient kind of dyads. Is that right? Was that was that what you did for your your doctorate? Yeah. So th- I did a couple studies, and that was kind of the. And, and like some philosophical work, but that was the main kind of study. And it's not, it's not published yet. It's been in with a journal since I think October, 2019. <laughs> it's still, it's still, still sitting there. Hopefully it goes through, but it, one of those things, but yeah, we, we recorded like actual appointments between uh, chiropractors and their patients with low back pain and also physiotherapists and their patients with low back pain. So focusing in on just private practice here in, in Canada uh, and then we split them up after and did individual semi-structured interviews with just the clinician and then just the patient. And the focus, yeah, as you mentioned, was on how do clinicians explain pain? Like, what's what's their rationale? Like, are they intentionally explaining it in certain ways to try to shape a patient's kind of meaning and understanding? And then on the patient side, we looked at what are their experiences uh, of, of getting these different pain explanations? Um, so we looked not only at the kind of current experience they had, but also their past experience. So with physicians, massage therapists, the whole whole crew of uh, people that they've seen. And what what struck you, it must have been fascinating to listen 
to listen to those consultations, essentially those recordings, but also fascinating to speak to the individuals as well. So what struck you when you listened to, to, to those interactions? Yeah, like such a like super fortunate to be able to do this. And I appreciate the people participating because we've done like I've done some interview studies in the past, but not observation like this, like real, real clinical type observations. And it's really incredibly logistically difficult in private practice um, to, to get in there mm. and start recording things. And but we really wanted to, to do that. And what really struck me was where there was this really this discrepancy between what clinicians do, like what we actually uh, heard and, and how they kind of explain things or, or, or kind of consider things in their individual interviews. So oftentimes I was uh, reading things back. I was like, okay, in, in the appointment you said X, Y, Z. And they're like, what? I said that? Like, I didn't even realize I said that, like these off the cuff things and, or, or what was kind of your, did you have an intention by explaining it this way? And they're like, I don't know. That was just how I, I explained it. Like I, I didn't have a, a reason behind it. And so we really highlighted there's often these kind of taken for granted ways that we explain pain or, or communicate with patients that can have unintended outcomes. They can have great outcomes and empower patients, but they can also create issues. And, and patients definitely told us that. So, so my my PhD, I video recorded patient interactions. So I had a camera set up and videoed the the osteopath with their patient doing what they do, and then analyzed the the data after. So yeah, logistically and ethically, it's a real kind of minefield. But you can get you get some real some really gold gold data. But it's interesting what you were saying about those taken for granted kind of meanings and assumptions we all have, but clinicians have. And when you ask a question in an interview, you know why did you say that? And there's this look of just I don't, you know, you've hit gold or, you know, you've hit something which is so tacit and so embedded in their clinical work that if you can begin to get them to articulate that and verbalize that, you're going to get something really, really valuable. I think from a, from a research perspective. Yeah. And these are wonderful clinicians all would be considered on the kind of the, the, the side of the spectrum, like evidence-based. Um, but th- then we have these conversations and they're like, shit, like I didn't, I didn't realize I was saying it this way, or I didn't realize like, oh, I, that, that's weird. That, that could be interpreted in different ways. And it, and I know I've done, and then I saw myself in so many of them where I was like, geez, like I've done some, like had some horrible yeah. pain explanations yeah. to patients in the past. And what I've been doing, like, as, like as a grad student, you reflect on these things and try to try to be better. Right. And, and try to maybe increase awareness and, and be more considerate of the words we use and the, the meanings that are assigned to these things. So it's not saying that they, what they're doing is like, I'm not trying to demonize some of the things they did because I've definitely done this exact exact same things, right? But yeah, it increases our awareness yeah. of these types yeah. of things. And what were some of the, what were some of the patterns in explanations or I know you went quite into metaphors that the clinicians were using and actually some of the metaphors that the, the patients were using, but what sense did you get from from the sorts of explanations that clinicians were providing with patients about pain can you give us a a bit of a summary of the the kind of things that you observed or or experienced when listening to these these recordings yeah uh most of the focus was on on uh, like anatomy and biomechanics and pointing kind of to to structural reasons for for pain and also structural reasons why they're going to get better so they're going to get better 
if they get core stability, uh, they're going to get better because their muscles are looser or their or their joints are less stiff. There wasn't really a lot of explanations that reflected the more kind of contemporary understanding of pain as a multi-dimensional experience and and how it can be treated a, a variety of different ways. So there was this really a focus on on kind of like a, a pathoanatomical understandings of pain. Metaphor, yeah, that was like the the interesting one where learning more about metaphor over the last uh, few years and what I realized is like... So did you go into the project knowing you wanted to find out about metaphors or did you kind of front-loading or was it the case, oh my God, these metaphors are coming up, like this is a really important thing, I'm now going to dive into this or was it the case that you set out to, to try and get a sense of uh, metaphors and how they reside within that interaction or what was just a surprise to you? Yeah, th- that wasn't the intention originally. So it was more just to look at like pain explanations. So what metaphor wasn't okay. uh, like a, a clear thing out- outlined. And I didn't even really have a good understanding of metaphor when I when I started designing the study. And but but doing the analysis, I was like, wow, like metaphors everywhere. And started reading more, more about it. And I was like, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people are like, oh, like you can decide whether or not to use metaphor. And I, I started to realize that's not the case. Like we always are using metaphor, whether we realize it or not. And it's used mm-hmm. it, it kind of in a bi-directional way in clinical practice. So pain as a subjective experience, it's um, not something observable. So as I mentioned before, like these narratives are the best way to kind of know if a person's experiencing pain and, and 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 for them to kind of describe their experience of pain. So even simple things like saying, oh, I have like my back pain is stabbing or I, I got a lightning bolt shock down my leg. Like these are metaphors used to kind of express the experience of pain. And then clinicians can then take that information and use it in their clinical reasoning. So a lightning bolt down the leg maybe could suggest a, mm-hmm. a neuropathic component and so i started diving into diving into that and the literature on metaphor and i was like so patients are are using them but then clinicians are then using metaphors then to explain pain back to patients to help them try to understand their experience so what we found was most of the metaphors used by clinicians were quite anatomical so suggesting that the body is like a machine that it needs to be fixed um and uh really that doesn't reflect our our contemporary understanding of pain and it can have unintended kind of outcomes or unintended effects and shape shape the patient's path yeah i'm reading you you had this great expression i think in that in the interview study of your of your thesis which said something like um clinicians help patients to act out their metaphor something like that so you kind of through through us or through clinicians offering metaphors to patients it just begins to to shape their their behavior in a way or how they, they act out they kind of live up to that metaphor which might be i don't know a stiff door hinge or like a, a jam poking out the donut or one of these things yeah that that blew my mind because i always thought of metaphors like as as like things that we just kind of verbally say like almost in like a didactic type of type of way and there's literature on what's called inactive metaphor. Um, so it's a uh, metaphor that we kind of bring to life or or bring into existence through bodily action. We live by that. The book, right? Yeah, yeah, like uh, yeah. So tying in embodied cognition into metaphor, 
it, it aligns nicely with kind of an active theory. And I was like, whoa, like this is this is so interesting. I started thinking about like clinical mm. scenarios, like people that it's like, mm. oh, your your knee is rusty, and then they uh, sense their their crepitus or or their movement, and they feel stiff, and they they actually start to act out these things, and it can shape their their behaviors. Yeah, yeah. And I guess the, the whole point about the why metaphors can be so why they're so I think so great is that they're so rich in detail and they're supposed to really land aren't they with with the person and convey something which other words wouldn't convey in the same level of detail or, or same kind of richness and so when we're using those metaphors con- to convey the fragility of the spine for example or the you know vulnerability of the back or then it kind of has a double whammy effect in terms of shaping unhelpful perceptions or beliefs amongst patients. Yeah. I, f- I found it so interesting. Like even things like, yeah, uh, saying things like, Oh, it's, it's wear and tear. They can kind of operationalize it in a certain way. Like, Oh, well, if I do exercise, it's going to make it worse or I, I shouldn't be doing this type of movement where if you flip it and say something like motion is lotion, it, it's, it's uh, kind of pointing a person in a different different path or a different direction and you can start to kind of experience that motion is lotion oh okay movement actually doesn't feel that bad like i'm not actually damaging myself i didn't have a, a massive flare-up oh maybe it isn't just wear and tear so we can start to kind of reshape maybe be- not so optimal metaphors into maybe a bit ones that are a bit more positive yeah completely and i think metaphors they, they give the game away a little bit in terms of patients starting beliefs around what's going on so they might just you know casually say um if my knees you know, it feels like a rusty door hinge or something and as a clinician you your ear, your ear should prick up and say mm, that what what does that suggest and that might you know i need to explore that what do you mean by a rusty door hinge or you know what describe a bit tell me a bit more about that or I, I, you said you know a moment ago you said that your knee felt like a rusty door hinge what tell me a bit more and so you might get some more detail about some of their beliefs about what they think's going on in their body and and with their pain so it's kind of probing a bit trying to understand where those metaphors come from and some of those beliefs which might be driving them or underpinning them so it's an opportunity for us to to begin a a sub conversation yeah huge huge yeah 100 percent. and then when patients are using metaphors which which we might consider to be unhelpful or overly structural biomechanical biomedical what do we do we so sometimes these metaphors are first of all they're kind of socially and culturally tied aren't they to who we are these are metaphors which our parents, grandparents, friends, they're just kind of hanging around our communities forever. And then to suddenly rip them away from patients seems like it's tearing away a comfort blanket. Like, like, no, I need that metaphor. That's how I communicate my, you know, what's going on in my back. I wonder if you thought about how we might address that, that they might have a personal need or uh, that, that, that metaphor is comforting to them. It's part of their own identity. And to suddenly say, well, actually, you know, your knee's not rusting. That's a terrible way to look at the you know what's going on in the actually it's you know something else any any thoughts how we might address that yeah it's super challenging and uh, Mosley and Butler do some wonderful uh work in this area and, and they talk about just that like you can have the often these really simple kind of anatomical metaphors are are quite persistent they maintain over time and and people mm. people really hold on to them and 
and they may be problematic. They may be limiting a person's self-management opportunities or may lead them more towards experimental fixes or, or treatment that isn't really that evidence-based. And so, so how can we start to maybe reshape those? And I think asking the patient permission to to talk about these things and ex- and explore it and not just trying to impose it uh, a new metaphor on them or 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 replace it but it really exploring their understandings and mm. and starting to open up a door to other conversations and behavioral experiments so uh, maybe uh, that con- bringing in that concept of an active metaphor so getting them to experience new metaphors so motion is lotion rather than my knee my body's a machine and my knees are rusty and it's fusing like uh, i think our words can only do so much but i think combining them with yeah like actually giving them experience of uh, of a metaphor in a different way can be a bit more powerful in terms of a learning mechanism. For sure. I mean, there's a few things there. One is I should have called this podcast Experience Matters, not Words Matter. That's the first mistake I made. <laughs> <laughs> no. the, the second thing is um, what you said before kind of just re- reminds me what when I spoke to Matt, Matt Lowe um, a couple of weeks ago and actually Tom Jessen just the other day about, I think Matt was saying something like, saying to patients would it be okay if we if, I, if we just explored this th- for example you might a patient might say the rusty knee metaphor and you might say you know would, would it be okay if we, just, if we just spoke about that for a bit more you know and th- this is another way that you can look at it and i think it's there's a way there's a kind of delicate way of approaching that curiously without just bashing it out the way and that's the kind of dance that you've got to do that 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 wanting to, acknowledging that's important to them, but at the same time having permission from them to present perhaps another way of looking at things or you know, other people, other metaphors that people use to describe your knee is this and perhaps introduce a, uh, an alternative and see what they make of that. Yeah, I like that. And I, li- I was listening to Matt's, the most recent one he did last night. And uh, so I did, ca- I did capture that. And uh, yeah, to- totally agree. And I, I think, yeah, we can't just immediately start, go and start confronting their their kind of strongly held beliefs like that doesn't that doesn't end well but we can start to have uh, if if with their permission like start to explore these things and talk about yeah we used to kind of conceptualize pain in this way but now there's there's new kind of research there's new understandings about it and many things shape the experience of pain it's not just about that that single structure and uh, start to explore that variable relationship between tissue damage or, or nociception and the experience of pain so uh, starting to unravel that with the patient and combining that with giving them an experience that pain is is somewhat malleable or malleable to a certain extent, I, I think can be quite powerful. But I, I like the way that Matt and you you talked about it. Like, yeah, we can't just come in blazing and try to confront their beliefs. It, it doesn't go go too well. Yeah, yeah, and I've done it. I've done. I've been enthusiastically, you know, off the back of some you know, short course and explain pain or something like that. You take, right, you know, that's all wrong. And you just, you, it, it, with the with, with the best intention, just trying to correct people's mistakes, essentially, the mistakes in belief. And it just doesn't end well, like that that you seem to, it's an affront to them. They feel like you just haven't really listened, that you haven't really kind of respected the the belief that no matter how ridiculous, ridiculous it might be or how inconsistent with reality or evidence you just you've just kind of rejected it and just replaced it with something 
something else. And I think I've yeah, done that and made many mistakes in my, in my time. And that's one of them that I've just too quickly try to jump in with the right answer or no, you don't want to be thinking about things that you want to be doing this, you know, you've been doing it all wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've done the same thing. And, uh, yeah, when I'm practicing, I was like, started timing myself and I'm like, how long can I go like in that initial consult before mm-hmm. trying to interrupt the patient or, or trying to impose my, my thoughts on them. And uh, it's, it's amazing. Like, so I, I would encourage like clinicians to, to see that, like how, how long before in that initial appointment, before you jump in and start uh, re- totally redirecting the conversation or their narrative or, or trying to offer unsolicited advice before asking for permission. Yeah. It's just another thing in your project, in your research, rather you, you, something came up around plastic models or anatomical models and imaging all kind of fed into this construction of meaning around pain for patients. And I wonder what you thought about you know, plastic spines, you know, anatomical models that are just going to hang in people's clinics. And to what, so in my own clinic, personally, I used to, you know, I went through time where I had all the anatomy charts and, you know, bits of the body laid out on my desk, which I was just couldn't wait to just pull up a vertebral segment and just show the patient yeah. exactly what was going on in their spine and point to it and show them what stuff. Subsequently, I've gotten rid of all of that and I've got pictures of cacti and waves in my clinic room <laughs> and I've thrown away the, the flexible spine uh, long ago and, and cut off the red bulging disc, which is <laughs> present in, in most of them. Yeah. But my, my, my view is that they can also be used for good. So you can obviously use them ineffectively or unhelpfully by just pointing out structures and and give a very um, simplified kind of structural explanation to patients' problems and pain. Mm-hmm. But I, I suppose you could also use it in a good way. You could pick up the big vertebrae and say, look how strong this, you know, this this thing is it's strong it's tough you could bend it so i wonder what you thought about the contribution of whether it's imaging or whether it's spinal models to that co-construction that construction of meaning and the explanations we we provide patients around pain yeah yeah i think you hit on it like i think the the, same with metaphors there's not like good ones or bad ones and it ultimately depends on how it's used and and the patient's meaning so a spine model i don't think is inherently bad um yeah. i think it depends on like how it, how it's used yeah there, there isn't some badness imbibed that resides within <laughs> within the plastic that wherever we throw this thing we throw it on mars it's just bad on mars it's uh it's like you said it's how we convey that and how we interpret it yeah and i think it's easy to grab like for whatever reason like anatomy just sticks with people so even though clinicians might Mm. be saying oh there's all these things that can impact a person uh, your your pain here's like a spinal model and here's like the si joint then when we talk to a patient they're going to say yeah it's my si joint Uh, they they miss that kind of rest of that story of Mm. the the other factors so i think that it can lead to very kind of concrete thinking or or conflating uh, anatomical changes with with pain uh, and suggesting a kind of a direct or isometric relationship and I think that's where it starts to get problematic, but inherently, I don't think they're they're bad. It's how we use them, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm conscious of the time. Um, I've taken over an hour of your time. Is there anything else? I mean, I, we've I've really enjoyed our conversation. Really, really loved it. Um, anything else we you, you want to touch on? Or uh, yes, yeah, so we touched on on so many things. Yeah, 
I guess, yeah, and activism has so many kind of philosophical components that I didn't really get into. And I encourage people to, to learn more, learn more about it. And there's tons of over the last couple of years, like there's been a massive explosion in, in the inactive literature. A book recently came out, Inactive Psychiatry by uh, Seneca Dehan. I don't know if I pronounced her name correctly. Like it's probably the best like kind of uh, description of an activism that I would come across. Cause a lot of the literature is like, it's so philosophical. It's so dense. It's so hard to get through. And she did such a beautiful job of like laying it out, or at least one, one kind of version or a general version of an activism. Um, so I'd encourage people to check that out if they're interested in learning more. Uh, obviously I've written about it and yeah, yeah paper is kind of dense and, but we'll, uh, I'll, I'll link. I mean, I'll certainly I'll link it in the show notes. It'll be and also your the DOI of your new paper. That's this isn't the one that's still under review since October. The one in medical humanities. That's that's in press, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of an extension yeah. of the that other study, and um, yeah, just the, that's the way the publishing process goes. Like sometimes delays. So um, yeah, we do have one that was uh, recently accepted uh, in medical humanities and it's focusing in on a lot of the things that we talked about metaphor. Um, it's talking about some of the findings from that study and yeah, it really went against the grain with, with that one. And there's some art in there and all types of fun things. So yeah. <laughs> Great. So, so, so two things, one, I was going to say, just make a comment that you you seem, I've got this distinction between, researchers based in humanities that do very little primary work i.e most of their work is based on existing uh, philosophical literature and creating argument from that but you could seem to span two fields that you're doing primary work collecting data from people whilst at the same time producing philosophical work too is that unusual in your area yeah i I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I just want to do it all. And I'm like, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not a philosopher. I've been just trying and suffering my way through it. And so I, I've been recently have been collaborating with a philosopher in, in Germany and, and working on a piece. And so learning a lot from her as I go. So I'm just trying to learn more. Um, cause I'm, I'm not a okay. trained philosopher. That's for sure. And this, the final thing was, I was going to ask the impossible <laughs> of you, which was to, if you were going <laughs> I'm sorry I have to ask you. So let's say you're a clinician, right? And you're listening to this podcast and they'll, they'll go away and read your stuff and, and read the other stuff. But do you have any bits of advice? And I, I don't want to use the word tips, but what is it, are there any nuggets of information that you could provide with them for them just to become a, alive to something in their clinical practice or their next interaction with patients yeah. that perhaps they weren't otherwise. I don't, I don't know if I have any uh, anything anything uh, mind blowing, but oh. <laughs> I don't like. I think you know, the podcast that you're doing is like extremely helpful. Like yeah, going through some some of the episodes, like you're hitting on those practical things um, that that I think are helpful in clinical practice. So talking about mm -hmm. uh like you and matt were talking about the cup analogy and, and that's something that could be immediately be used in clinical practice yeah. and it reflects a very kind of an active thinking i think and uh you guys talked about the teach back technique so or to the teach back method so really tapping mm -hmm. into patients understanding so once they you you talk to them and their their appointment uh, you say something along the lines of okay, if you're going to go home and explain your pain or your condition to your wife or family member or a colleague, how would you explain it? And it, it offers a window to their 
their meanings and their understandings. And you can see whether you're shaping it maybe in a, the right direction or whether they're holding on to previous explanations they're given. And I think you guys have talked about a lot of these things that can be used. And when I was listening in, I'm like, I don't, I don't got, I don't, I don't got nothing left. You guys are hitting on all the things that I, <laughs> that I get, get excited <laughs> about. So yeah, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. Matt spoils it. Matt spoils it for all of us. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a bright guy and uh, always brilliant. wonderful to to talk to. Yeah. Okay. Final thing I'm going to say is that. Um, so, how are you going to feel when the trialists reduce your five E model down to some measurable, <laughs> measurable tool to test it against other forms of other approaches? Because you know, because you think about it, if if let's say you know, 10 years time or we'll have a period of time, your, your, your 5e model or approach to the BPS model, someone's like, right, this sounds really good. It's cogent. There's a good theoretical basis for it. We need to empirically see if it, how it compares to alternative approaches. Right. And do you ever see, is that, do you see that as ever happening? I mean, again, it's a hypothetical question, but what would, because ultimately the way things work, you know, empiricism still kind of dominates in terms of healthcare. Like if it's going to be taken up, it needs to be proven to be better than, you know, existing care or, or current thinking. So how does that work? Like, how would you do that? How would anyone do that? Yeah. I think there's always that, that, that push, right. It's a cultural, cultural thing where we value these so-called objective things over subjectivity. And hopefully there's a bit of a shift over the, the coming years or, I sense a bit of it coming uh, with more of an emphasis on kind of person-centered or whole person care. But yeah, there's a long ways to go. I think people are always going to look for those, try to quantify things that aren't really quantifiable. Um, and it, yeah, you just adapt and things shift and move and there'll be new stuff always coming out, new theories. Yeah. And just, I think for clinicians, it's just adapt, take what take what works and, and do the best you can for the patient. Peter, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for your time. No, I appreciate the invite. Yeah, enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, no, it was really good. Thank you so much. You're doing great work. Thanks. Yeah, uh, you as well. Like, I, 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 like, I'm newer to. Like, I know you've just recently started this podcast, but like, yeah, just uh, listening in, I'm just like, this is confirming all my biases, and <laughs> yeah, so so interesting. Like, uh, I love it. Yeah, and no, I, I plan to just produce more episodes which confirm all of our biases, so we don't have to change. That's what I'm hoping. <laughs> I'll be listening in. Yeah. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources, and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.